Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at the Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're going to be going around the world to Europe, the Middle East, and even here in America as we talk with our broadcast partners. You're going to hear information today on this 90-minute program that you will not hear from the mainstream media. We have an analysis on geopolitical events happening around the world, and in particular, a focus on the Middle East that will help you to understand how the stage is being set for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. We're going right now to the southern portion of France to talk with Ken Timmerman. He has a pulpourri of geopolitical activities that I want to talk to Ken about. Ken, it's good to be there. You kind of like that portion of France to do your writing of your new book, but you also spend some time in your orchard there, don't you? I do, Jimmy. We have a hundred olive trees, and uh, you know, there's a lot of maintenance that has to be done, and a lot of work. Uh, so I'm a part-time farmer as well. Well, that is a great opportunity to relax, but then be able to get your brain focused on writing your new book. Well, uh, there's a lot of activity that's been taking place in Europe this last week. G7 meeting with Biden. Let's begin with that. Overall, how do you think he handled the relationship with the members of the G7, and how did he portray America? Well, Jimmy, I watch it fairly closely from here, and the European leaders were very happy to see Joe Biden as President of the United States because he did not challenge them. He did not ask them to step up to the plate, as Donald Trump had done when it comes to financing of NATO. And he did not really ask them to make any commitments whatsoever to our collective security, which, as far as the Europeans concerned, means it's back to things as usual with the United States taxpayer footing the bill for the security of Europe. And by the way, that was a topic that you didn't hear discussed at all in the national media in the United States uh, because it wasn't discussed in public uh, at the summit. So it's really quite extraordinary. To me, the big news of the summit was the news that was the least reported on. And that's why we have a great opportunity to serve the people of the United States of America, those that are Christians especially. But even non-Christians should come and listen to our analysis. We have top-rated journalists, authors like you, Ken, who are traveling around the world, but you can stay on top of these stories even as you are traveling. Well, after G7, they had a NATO meeting. I can remember that Donald Trump got all over NATO because they weren't paying their fair share. How did Biden approach NATO, in your opinion? Well, well, that's right. And, and so the, the, the whole issue of funding was not discussed publicly during the NATO summit at all. There was no statement about it. There was this one, I think, pretty significant new development, and that was the NATO Secretary General Jens Saltenberg stating publicly that NATO was concerned about communist China. They were concerned about communist China from a security point of view, from cybersecurity point of view, on a human rights aspect, and a whole, you know, scope of issues, and it got the attention of the Chinese who came out and said, well, NATO should stop threatening us. They took it as a threatening statement. They should stop threatening us and pretending that we are an enemy or an adversary. So this new focus on communist China, I thought, was in 
interesting. It is significant. It is completely out of the NATO area of operations. Remember, this is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization created in 1949 to keep the peace in Europe in continental Europe, not in China. Now, I'm not saying that NATO shouldn't take a stance on communist China because, you know, the Chinese are trying to control 5G. You know, they're trying to control the new Internet of Things that's being rolled out bit by bit in Europe ahead of the United States, by the way. So there's a very significant threat when somebody buys, for example, a Huawei Wi-Fi device to connect to the Internet. You know, that Wi-Fi device made by Huawei, which is a Chinese communist-controlled company, will quite likely, and according to the U.S. intelligence agencies, will most certainly report back to China data on the user. Whether it's for commercial purposes or intelligence purposes is another story. But those Huawei devices are not secure, and they report your data back to communist China. And that is a big concern that the Europeans share with us. And just before we do leave Brussels and the NATO conference, looks like that uh, NATO, who was brought into existence for the purpose of protecting the European Union from Russia, is saying that uh, the relationship between the EU, Europe, and Russia is at the lowest point it's been in quite a while, maybe even since the end of the Cold War. What are your thoughts? Well, that's true, and I think uh, Putin acknowledged that as well at his uh, press conference after the summit meeting with Biden. NATO has certainly recognized it, and, I, and I've got to say, Jimmy, I think this is a self-inflicted wound. This is something that the Democrats in the United States have created whole cloth with the fabrication, that the fantasy that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. And I heard this repeated I don't know how many times over the past week by Democrat Party operatives on the airwaves, on television and radio. I even debated a couple of these people in the Middle East on television. They are still insisting that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. We know now that that, it's a total hoax. It was a fabrication. And when people say, well, you know, Donald Trump contradicted his intelligence agencies when he met with Putin in Helsinki in 2018, and it was an absolute embarrassment. Well, in fact, Donald Trump was right. The intelligence agencies were wrong because it was the Obama intelligence agencies in January 2017 who made this conclusion that Russia had intervened, and it was a false report. It was a fabricated report based on a fabricated dossier by this guy, Christopher Seale, the former British intelligence agent, who himself may be an agent of Moscow. That we don't know. That's something to explore. But anyhow, it was a phony dossier, and they are still trying to claim that it was true. So a lot of the Bad blood between Moscow and Washington these days, I believe, is self-inflicted by Washington. On the sidelines there in Brussels, while Joe Biden, the president, was there, he had a conversation, a side conversation, with Tayyip Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey. Relationships between the United States and Turkey have not been really that good. How did that meeting come out? You know, Jimmy, what I find extraordinary about all of these meetings is how little the press really presses the administration, really goes after the, the administration for information. We have very little information. Dribs and drabs that are leaked out by the State Department, fed to the media, but they don't follow up. I found President Putin's press conference far more revealing than anything that Biden said or any of his advisors said. We learned very little about this meeting with Erdogan, with the exception that perhaps the United States has 
has decided to find a new area of cooperation with Turkey in having them guard the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Hello? Why should we be looking to Turkey to you know, carry out security operations at the, the main airport in Afghanistan? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Turkey is a NATO ally. NATO is engaged in Afghanistan. This is certainly true, but NATO is pulling out. So as NATO pulls out, we're asking another NATO ally that's in bed with a Taliban affiliate, the Muslim Brotherhood, to take care of security in Kabul. I just don't quite see the logic of that. But that is the one thing that we learned from that so-called summit between Erdogan and Biden. I think the state of our information today is lamentable. It's disgraceful. And I think the press ought to be uh, really hiding in a cave instead of being so proud of themselves. Ken, there was a big buildup about the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. What are your thoughts out of that summit? You mentioned what Putin said in his news conference, but about the content of what they did discuss in that summit. Well, there's one thing that, we again, we learned because it was announced by the State Department and, and by President Biden was that there was going to be a resumption of this new START agreement. Uh, and that is a positive thing, I mean, to hopefully ensure that both the U.S. and Russia do not go beyond the limits of roughly 1,650 nuclear warheads. But, you know, arms control has always been a favorite of the Democrats, and they've never liked to do the verification necessary to make arms control meaningful. An arms control agreement is only as good as the verification. Uh, we've seen that with the Iran agreement and the IAEA, right, the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, which cannot verify the Iran nuclear deal, and they continue to tell us that, by the way. Uh, luckily, at least they tell us that. With a new START treaty, we don't know if Russia has uh, actually kept to the limits. We do know that in the final days of the Trump administration, the United States withdrew from several treaties with Russia because Russia was violating them. We withdrew from the Open Skies Treaty. This was a, a treaty that had been negotiated originally under the Reagan administration that allowed the United States and Russia to observe from the air each other's territory to watch for military activity, to, to survey military activity. And the Russians were not allowing the Americans to do that surveillance while the Russians were in U.S. territory doing it. So Trump withdrew from it. He also withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear uh, Forces, the INF uh, Treaty, which was there since 1983. You know, th there have been a lot of problems with these treaties, with Russia specifically, because there is no verification. So the fact that the State Department trumpets the continuation of this new START agreement uh, really does not give me much solace because I don't have a clue what kind of verification they're talking about because they won't tell us. And that is the opportunity for us to try to investigate and get all the information we can. Mainstream media not doing any investigation. Ken Timmerman, he's there in Europe trying to find out everything he possibly can and report it to you, our listeners, right here on Prophecy Today. We did not talk about uh, the elections in Iran. We'll do that next week. Ken will give us analysis of that at that time. Ken, thank you very much. We'll have another conversation next week and have fun there at your place in southern France. Thanks so much, Jimmy. I am on God's piece of paradise on earth. Here I am. I give blessing every day for it. Thank you so much, <laughs> and God bless. Have a good time writing your book as well. Well, we're going to have to take a break right now. David Dolan's standing by. He's got a Middle East news update. 
That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and five-hour audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at the Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, talking to our broadcast partners around the world giving us insight into current events to help us understand how God's prophetic scenario is coming better into focus on a daily basis. As promised, we're going to David Dolan. He has his Middle East News update. This is an essential report for each and every one of us who are students of Bible prophecy. And David, let me go to Israel right away, and in fact, into the Gaza Strip. Hamas is making some promises that they're going to continue their armed struggle against the new government in Israel that seems to be developing even in the activities this week. Can you give us the details, please? Well, yes, Jimmy, the Israeli uh, chief of staff, General Kohavi, said that he is beefing up forces once again along the Gaza Strip. He's actually flying to the United States today to meet with senior officials. But before he left on Friday, he said he would beef up the forces and they may have to go in. Hamas protested that Israel was changing the ground rules, as they put it in a statement, Uh, by striking at their targets twice during the week in Gaza after, um, oh, dozens of incendiary devices, balloons with the bombs attached and explosives attached, started uh, 12, 13 fires in Israel. And before, the Israelis wouldn't respond to those fires 
with aircraft in this way. So they said, you're upping the game and changing the rules. Well, what rules? Nobody made any, any rules there. Israel made no promises. In fact, the new government did say, as I reported last week, that they would meet uh, incendiary devices. They would consider them like rockets because they do start fires, they burn fields, they burn homes, and several Israelis have been killed in those fires. So they take this very seriously. But we now know that the new government is certainly not going to be any softer than the Netanyahu government. This strike came as Israel also hit a a Syrian position near the Golan Heights during the week on Wednesday night uh, after Hezbollah, senior Hezbollah officials from Lebanon were seen there. They were visiting and strengthening the Hezbollah presence right along Israel's northern border. So we saw action in Gaza and action in the north this week. So the new government is obviously going to take a tough stand on terrorism, both in the north and in the south. Talk to me about what the Palestinian leadership had to say. They made a statement this week that Neftali Bennett is more radical than Benjamin Netanyahu. What are your thoughts about that statement? Well, I think it's actually accurate. Uh, He's a tough cookie. He is a very conservative. uh, As we've said, he's religious. He's the first ever prime minister that wears a kippah all the time. He always goes to synagogue. Benjamin Netanyahu had weekly prayers at his home and a Bible study and other things, so it's not as if he wasn't. But uh, Bennett is further in that direction, and they're learning that now. And, uh, Hamas, of course, has condemned his government. Um, by the way, there was uh, rioting in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount yesterday on Friday after Friday prayers. And a security cabinet meeting has been called for tomorrow, Sunday, Jimmy, to discuss all of this. But uh, it looks like, and I told you this a month ago as in our discussions that we would at least have an uprising this summer, if not continued violence, but possibly another full round of war. And this time, the Israelis may even go into the Gaza Strip. They're just not going to let Hamas get away with these provocative actions all the time, supposedly in defense of Jerusalem, but really, of course, they want to see all of Israel destroyed, and uh, they're taking actions offensive actions to uh, create the conditions for that. And we'll stay on top of this story with David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us. Very important information given to all of us so we can understand the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. David, a moment ago, you mentioned that Neftali Bennett was a religious Jew, Orthodox, wears the kippah, the little beanie on the back of his head. However, the religious parties this week say they fear this secular government. That's what the religious leaders of political parties are calling it. And uh, the fact is there is going to be a boycott, according to one leader, against what is happening in this new government. Talk to us about that. Well, Jimmy, basically the uh, two main religious parties are not in the government for the first time in many, many years. And being a part of the coalition government, frankly, you get a lot more government aid for your particular voters and your people. The fear from the Sephardic Shas party and the Ashkenazi uh, United Torah Judaism party is that the funding for their schools and their uh, seminaries, their yeshivas, they're called in Hebrew, uh, will be cut 
And that is the stated position of two of the parties in the government, the Merits left-wing party and the Labor Party, has said they want to do that. And Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Russian-based party is also an advocate for that. So three of the eight parties want to see these religious parties cut down, as it were, and have less influence. They want to open up travel on Shabbat. They want to open up more stores and, and public transport and this sort of thing. So, yes, the Orthodox parties are very unhappy with this, even though, again, for the first time ever, we have an Orthodox man sitting at the helm, but he's sitting with the, you know, the centrist Lapid, who's the foreign minister. They just have to swallow hard and take it because they couldn't, uh, Netanyahu couldn't persuade enough other parties to uh, join him. But uh, they're hoping, of course, to topple this current government and to go back to the former arrangement. And as we've said, that could well happen. Just a one-seat majority the government has in Parliament. So uh, very tenuous indeed. And speaking on that subject, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu is down, but he's making the statement and actively involved in letting everybody know he is not out. He may be down, but he's not out for good. In fact, I understand that there was already a call for a no-confidence vote within the first week of this new government supposed to vote on it this coming week. I mean, Netanyahu is not going to sit still. He has vowed that he's going to try to bring down this government as soon as he possibly can. I think he's going to follow through, don't you? Well, Jimmy, he knows full well that some of the members of the government of the two right-wing parties, Naftali Bennett's own Yamina, which means to the right in Hebrew party, and the New Hope Party, uh, which uh, is a breakaway from the Likud, he knows that some of those Knesset members are very uncomfortable sitting in a government with an Arab Islamic party, with merits, this anti-religious party, etc. So when the government faces any issue dealing with these topics, it's very likely that they will vote against their own government. That's what he's hoping, and that alone would cause the government to fall. So yes, it's extremely tenuous, Jimmy. There's going to be no confidence votes probably every week. And again, when they really have to deal with an issue that's core, that's divisive between these two right-wing parties and the two very left-wing parties on the other end, really three with the Arab party, uh, we're going to probably see it fall apart. And Netanyahu knows that, and uh, he'll be working real hard to make that happen. David, in the past, we've talked about the Red Dead Project, which was going to be an effort to bring water from the Red Sea up to the Dead Sea and refill the Dead Sea, which is losing much of its water. That was going to be a partnership between Israel and Jordan. Now, I understand Jordan has withdrawn from that partnership. Is Israel going to move ahead with the Red Dead, or is it basically dead? Well, they could do it alone without Jordan, but it would run right along the long Jordanian-Israeli border south of the Dead Sea. It's a straight line basically down to Eilat and Aqaba, the uh, Arab town right next to Eilat. So they could easily disrupt it, in other words, if they wanted to. So it's certainly less likely that Israel will do this unilaterally. But as you said, the Dead Sea is not only the saltiest sea on earth and the lowest uh, spot uh, in the Middle East, 
but it is drying up significantly, and they would hate to see that disappear. And the Jordanians as well. Both countries get phosphates from the Dead Sea. It's a major industry in both countries. So if it dries up, it's worthless, basically, and uh, a solution has to be found. There was another suggestion that they bring water from the Mediterranean. That would be a much shorter distance across to the Dead Sea, but that would go right along Gaza. So, again, problems there. So we'll see, but it's sad to see that historic lake. Really, it's not a sea, an inland lake, more or less dry up. And that does have great significance. I'll discuss that attention to that issue when I take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. David, very key report each and every week, your Middle East news update. Appreciate you staying on top of everything that's happening and helping us to understand it from a very practical perspective and prophetic as well. Thank you, buddy. We'll have another conversation next week. I'm blessed to do it, Jimmy. Thank you. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Winky Madad at the broadcast table and discuss a potpourri of items with Winky. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We move into our second half hour on Prophecy Today. When we bring our broadcast partners to the broadcast table for the purpose of giving us insight, the details behind the headlines that we're reading or hearing on radio and television so that we may have a better understanding of how the Lord is using these current events to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, in the next moments, we're going to talk with Winky Madad. After that, we'll go to Maurice Hirsch. Winky will look at the body politic of the Jewish people in Israel, and Maurice will look at the body politic of the Palestinian people. Winky, we've been into the new government that was voted on last Sunday. They are now in operation. Let me just ask you to quickly give us what your thoughts are about the first couple of days of the new Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, and his coalition government. Well, Jimmy, we're uh, living in uh, a period that has not really been experienced, at least uh, in Israel, and I think between you and me, in most other countries around the world, in which a quite diverse 
government, both in terms of its politics, its ideology, its agenda importance, and actually its own personal makeup. Uh, we have nine women in the uh, 26, I think it is, uh, member government. We have one who's in a wheelchair. Uh, we have uh, immigrants. We have all types of people. And I would presume that many people are looking at this uh, as a very exciting experiment. But, of course, running a government, running a country... Uh, setting up policy, uh, finances, dealing with defense and diplomatic overseas issues of international importance, and especially with a government that really has not had that much experience in governing, either you would call it daunting or audacious. Well, that's exactly what I have been thinking in my mind as I've been watching everything develop over the last couple of days as well. In my reading from what's coming out of Israel, I understand that the Shas, which is a political party as well, their spiritual leader has commanded all of those people he has control over to boycott the Israeli government. Is that happening with Shas and with other people as well? Well, Jimmy, we're only into the first week, so I don't know if we have that much uh, to say has been done or not done. I want you and our listeners to understand uh, this government is radically different in its approach not only to uh, social, uh, economic, and defense issues, but of course the issues of religion and state. And so we look forward to a lot of internal fighting, uh, and in fact both leaders of this government uh, Naftali Bennett has only six seats out of the 120 in the Knesset, who will be our prime minister for the next almost two years. And Mr. Yair Lapid will be telling and have been telling their coalition partners not to bring up the most divisive issues uh, up front and to do what they think is the best for the country in a period of moving away from Netanyahu uh, politics and leadership, shall we say. But of course, there is the feeling among the coalition that they're not going to last the four years. And so a lot of the smaller parties, like the Labor or the Merits or even the Arab Party, that has a deputy minister, probably want to get as much of their agenda uh, through the door faster than later. So uh, there is an internal conflict going on, and I don't know uh, what is going to win out. And at the same time, the Palestinians are saying that Prime Minister Bennett is much more radical than even Prime Minister Netanyahu was. I don't believe that could possibly be the case, but what are your thoughts? Well, uh, Mr. Bennett is under attack not only by the Arabs, but by Israel's media as well. The whole purpose of the media campaign over the past few years and the street rallies that we mentioned uh, in our previous reports and other issues is going to trial. All these issues were simply directed not per se to the issues, but to get Netanyahu out of power. And it took them a long time, which shows the tenacity of Mr. Netanyahu, 
But eventually, there were cracks. And as we discussed this before, two parties that basically came from the right, the Yamina Party and the New Hope Party, together, if I'm not mistaken, they have, I think, 11 or so seats, or 12, I'm not quite sure anymore. They simply walked, as we say in Britain, they walked across the aisle. So it wasn't as if Mr. Netanyahu lost the election, in a sense, but that he lost his coalition partners. And he had to recognize that, knowing that simply he could not reach that 60 or 61. And in fact, in the vote of the confirmation of the new government, they barely squeaked by 59 to 60 with one abstention. And so uh, it's going to be a tight rope walk in the next few weeks before they began to get their uh, parliamentary legs in action. After serving 12 years as the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu moves now to head the opposition. And is it true, I heard, that uh, they have already called for a a vote of no confidence against this new government. They did that in the first week, and next week they're to vote on it. What do you know? Well, look, there are two basic problems here. One is, of course, that all of a sudden you have a lot of ministers and deputy ministers who lost their jobs. More than a 100 of their advisors lost their jobs. So it's not just a simple matter of, oh, they're out of power. There's a lot of personal issues here and egos. There are not that many more positions left in the Knesset or the Knesset uh, committees uh, to give out to people. So there's going to be a lot of necessity on the part of all the former coalition partners who are now in the opposition to get used to the fact. It's been done before, but uh, that's one of the major challenges to Mr. Netanyahu, uh, to keep his coalition together without rumblings or grumblings. It's a whole new uh, thing. And to plan out. How, in his opinion, his goal, of course, is to bring down the government as as quickly as possible. Let's not forget, uh, Jimmy, we have an American administration that is democratic and very liberal and anti-Trump achievements. We uh, have the Iranian uh, Navy coming into the Mediterranean Sea. We have Europe, who is going to continue to fund various... Arab uh, NGOs and other issues in order to keep them alive. And so uh, these are things that the government, I think, is going to find very difficult to deal with. I do know that the new government under Neftali Bennett did approve the flag march that was to go into the old city and towards the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. And I want to know why this took place and for what purpose. Jimmy, the flag march has been about 20 or so, 25 years old. So it's not something new that was challenging to the new government or even to the Netanyahu government. Uh, it usually takes place on Jerusalem Day. Uh, at the end of the afternoon of Jerusalem Day, thousands of thousands, maybe tens of thousands sometimes, uh, of usually the youth pour into the city and march through Jerusalem streets into the old city through the Damascus Gate. And uh, there have been some problems in the past, but it only deals with uh, several dozens of people who can get unruly, and it's unfortunate and should be condemned. But this year, if we all remember, uh, uh, rockets were flying over Jerusalem or near Jerusalem at the time, so the march was canceled. And in our part of the world, Jimmy, sometimes 
we Jews just do not give up, and we were looking for the next opportunity. Uh, application to, to Mars was made. It happened just before the new government was to come into power, so Netanyahu smartly passed it on, but uh, Mr. Bennett and Mr. Lapid said we have a right to march through Jerusalem, marking the city's uh, unification back in 67. It was only not unified, if I can use that phrase, for only 19 years out of about 3,000 years. I don't see why anybody should get upset about uniting Jerusalem again. It went through, and uh, actually nothing much happened that unnerved or set a, a, a fire, a third world war here in the Middle East. And that's good information to let us know about. That's good news, in fact. Well, one final thing I want to ask you about. President Biden's White House has made a decision. He directed his State Department to erase the phrase Abraham Accords. That could possibly, if he doesn't want to use that term, doesn't want that type of operation in any way going on for the state of Israel. Could that ignite a war pretty quickly in the Middle East? Well, Jimmy, it's, it's a matter of, of course, ideology or even faith-based politics. Mr. Trump and his advisors come from a very strong biblical prophetic basis. And for them, the peoples of the Middle East are the sons of Abraham. For Mr. Biden and his very liberal, democratic, even progressive party now, and it's getting more and more progressive, uh, to speak in any terms of faith or religion or Bible is a touchy topic. And so they prefer normalization accords. Uh, Abrahamic, of course, means that the Jews, Arabs, and even the Christians have a common destiny in, in, in the Middle East, and we should approach things on that level. You know, this is like Mr. Biden trying to avoid... I think the phrase is the elephant in the room, and if he does so, he just might ruin any sort of future possibility for not only for peace but economic uh, cooperation and other issues that will advance at least the benefit of the people to realize that they could have a better future if they stop with jihad, if they stop with all sorts of issues that have nothing to do not only with Israel's right to exist, but for their rights to live in a peaceful and secure area without any threats. You're listening to The Voice, or have been listening to The Voice of Winky Madad. Winky, thank you so much. Appreciate the report. And I'm going to continue to get a hold of you to give us your analysis of what's happening. But thank you for joining us today. Jimmy, as always, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to talk to you Goodbye to you and to our listeners. Well, that's the latest from Wiki Madad on the body politic of the Jewish people in the state of Israel with a new government and all that's happening, a possibility of the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas falling apart. But on the body politic of the Palestinian people, I'm going to go now to Maurice Hirsch. He is with the organization Palestinian Media Watch, he and that team are responsible for monitoring the daily activities of the Palestinian media, both electronic and also print media. 
Maurice, thank you for joining us today, giving us insight into what's happening among the Palestinian people. I read one of the polls that is indicating that the Palestinian support for Hamas spiked, actually, during that 11-day war. What can you tell us about that? Well, so, Jimmy, we have to really understand what were the underlying currents that brought about the war. Mahmoud Abbas had planned elections at the behest of the Biden administration and the European Union. He didn't want to have elections and was looking for any excuse to cancel them. He didn't want elections because he knew that his Fatah party would lose and that Hamas would win. He eventually cancelled the elections and that started really a race between the two main parties, Fatah and Hamas, who would be seen as the person most defending the Palestinians' rights to self-determination. Him and Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah started violence in Jerusalem, and Hamas followed soon after. So really, the whole war was basically a political battle between Fatah and Hamas and had nothing to do whatsoever with Israel or any of Israel's policies. And so now you have the development of they've started the war, they've managed to fire 4,500 uh, uh, rockets at Israel's civilian population to close down Ben-Gurion, Israel's international airport, and that is seen by the Palestinian population as being a tremendous success. They fundamentally support, unfortunately, that is the picture that is being created, they fundamentally support violence against Israel designed to kill Israeli citizens. Maurice, as I understand it, Hamas is at that point when they're ready to break the ceasefire with Israel. The fact is they started sending the firebombs, starting a number of fires in the southern part of the state of Israel. Do you believe that Hamas is ready to break that ceasefire today? So we have to understand who fundamentally Hamas is. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Their goal is to create terror wherever they can, for as long as they can, and at every opportunity that they have possible. They have no interest in anything else. They have no interest really in uh, um, upholding any type of ceasefire with Israel. They see from their actions that when they invoke violence, they actually improve their popularity with the, with the Palestinian population, and therefore they have no incentive to merely sit back, control, and govern. That is their fundamental terrorist nature, and that has to be understood. And, and so when you, when you see, are they interested in breaching the ceasefire? Yes, of course, because their goal, their stated goal of the Charter of Hamas is to bring about the destruction of Israel. And so that's the goal that they're working to achieve all day, every day. That's something which I think most people don't necessarily understand, that these people are just inherently evil, and they're looking to impose their evil Islamist worldview on everyone, first starting with the destruction of Israel. I do know that Hamas in the past has made a statement, that even after the ceasefire, that they had some 10,000 Palestinian men who were ready to be suicide bombers. Now, is that bravado, or do they really mean that's available for them at this point in time? Well, unfortunately, I think that, that many or a great part of the population in Gaza has been so fundamentally brainwashed over the last 
15 years of Hamas rule in Gaza. You're talking about children up to the age of 15 who have never seen any type of other leadership. They've always learned in those Hamas schools that teach them that dying for Allah, martyrdom, is the highest goal of Islam. So I think you have the, many of the, those, those people who are, who are willing to die during the war and even just prior to the war. One of the, the Hamas leaders said they already have the factory for, for creating suicide belts for all the potential terrorists. Again, that's going back to the previous answer. That's their fundamental terrorist nature. Their goal is to kill people, as many people as possible. And if they send their children, their cousins, their neighbors' children to do that terrorist work, well, then that's just fine. I do know that, Maurice, part of your activities with PalWatch.org, and by the way, that's their website address, PalWatch.org, Palestinian Media Watch, that the, the article you have up that I read just today is about a Palestinian martyr cult. In other words, those who are preparing to be those suicide bombers. Talk to us about that cult. How, how definite, how serious is this among the Palestinian people? Well, so here, Jimmy, obviously you're touching on something which your listeners have to understand is of a fundamentally different nature. Here we're not talking about Hamas. Hamas are the evil terrorists. They're imposing their fundamentalist Islam worldview on everybody. Here you're talking about this culture of death and martyrdom, of terrorism, that is promulgated by the Palestinian Authority, by Fatah, by the so-called moderates. If you uh, listen to much of the discussion after the war, there was much talk about, especially from uh, even the Secretary of State, of the United States, of now empowering and strengthening the Palestinian Authority, strengthening Mahmoud Abbas, because he's not Hamas. What he's teaching, his population, is almost no different from Hamas. This culture of martyrdom, of, of death, one of his senior leaders, kissing the clothes of, of a terrorist who had been killed. We're talking about fundamentally warped ideology, what people tend to see and and understand are the moderate, because they're moderate and compared to, to Hamas, possibly, but not when compared to, to other functioning societies that obviously don't teach that type of depravity. And on that article on powwatch.org, it indicated that even the mothers think that their children as suicide bombers are more important than even going up to be an adult in the Palestinian world. They consider the land of Palestine more important than their children. Is that really what they're building all of these desires on? We had, unfortunately, a, a video just a, a few months ago where a child is telling the story of, of a mother and his little boy. The little boy has, has excelled in his studies and has been promised a present by his mother. And he comes home and he shows her the test and, and he says to her, well, now I would like my present. And so she brings out the present, and the present is an AK-47 rifle, a Kalachnikov rifle. And he gives her the present, and the boy's looking at her and says, well, what's this? He says, this, my son, is your present. Because you are not destined to be happy. You are destined to be a martyr. You are our ammunition. That's a video that was spread and promulgated by by Fatah, by Mahmoud Abbas's party, the so-called moderate party, 
parents who tell their children that they are merely ammunition, that they have no right to be happy, no aspiration to be happy, just to die for the cause. That's something which, unfortunately, we've seen, and we've seen a tremendous amount of in the media being spread by Fatah every day. Um, this, is, this is that same martyrdom culture that the reporter uh, discussed. And unfortunately, it's, it's not a one-off event. It's something that is repeated time after time after time. And then you ask yourself, well, how can it be that Hamas says that they have 10,000 potential suicide bombers? Because this is what they teach their children from such a young age. We have then with this philosophy among the Palestinian people and the two factions of the body politic of the Palestinians, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and then Fatah under Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, a philosophy that says this is not over. A ceasefire may be a temporary time for them to reload and go after the Jewish state of Israel again, but it looks like that ceasefire is not destined to last very long because Hamas and Fatah are not going to allow that to happen. Was that be your thinking as well, Maurice? Indeed it is, Jimmy. Um, sadly enough, this is a, at the moment a never-ending cycle of violence. It's what Golda Meir said, uh, that the violence will only stop when the Palestinians love their children more than they hate us. At the moment, the situation is still the opposite. They hate us more than they love their children. Maurice Hirsch, the man who is a part of the team Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org, their web address, and a very important report for those listening across the United States and around the world here on Prophecy Today, for you to have heard this report. Maurice, thank you so very much. Very important information to pass along. Appreciate it. We'll have another conversation down the road. Thank you very much. You stay well. As we draw to a close in this second half hour, we're going to talk with John Rood, who is the man who covers the European Union for us. And we've been in the Middle East looking at the Jews with Winky Madad and the Palestinians with Maurice Hirsch. But now, John, let's talk about the European Union, another location, a very key region as it relates to Bible prophecy. This last week at Brussels, your old hometown, uh, they had a NATO meeting, a conference there, and the chief of NATO said that relations with Russia was at its lowest point in history. And in fact, uh, the European Union leader also made this statement that the EU itself, apart from NATO, must be more robust and resilient against Russia. What uh, do you think that would be involved in doing? Yes, the EU-Russia relations are at a low point as well, certainly, uh, just like the NATO statement. The Commission President, uh, Joseph Borrell, he came out with a whole new uh, initiative policy of, of options, you could say, for the EU-Russia relations, and entitled it Push Back, Constrain, and Engage. This is strong language coming from the EU. They appear to be taking a new initiative on what they describe to be a complex relationship between the EU and Russia. And remember, there's a certain dependencies here, that uh, Russia literally supplies one quarter of all the oil imports to the European Union, 40% of the gas imports. At the same time, Russia is only 
4.8% of the EU's total trade, but the opposite is that Russia's biggest trade partner is the EU, and that's 37% of Russia's trade in goods. So it's one-sided on one side, and it's one-sided on the other, yet the EU is is taking a harder stance here. Let's talk about NATO one more time. They also, in that conference, talked about having to deal with security as it relates to China. So Russia and China, head of the agenda with NATO. What about China? Yeah, NATO has its hands full here. Uh, the relationships with Russia stated as all-time low. And then at the same time, uh, saying the Secretary General said he needed the uh, the military bloc to strengthen its strategy to counter China. And so they want to strengthen their their policy. Uh, Russia is seen uh, noted for aggressive actions, but uh, China is building up military. It's growing uh, uh, influence. It has coercive behavior. And so uh, it's a concern as well. NATO definitely is concerned and making these statements openly. As I have a discussion with John Root on a weekly basis, if you've just been listening to our conversation, you recognize three major players in the prophetic scenario of God's Word, Russia, China, and the European Union, destined to be the revived Roman Empire. John, that's why it's key to have a conversation with you each and every week. Thank you so much, my good friend. You give us great information that is key for our understanding of the end times. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. We're going to have to take a break when we come back. In our next half hour, I'll be talking with David James. We're going to approach the subject critical race theory. You don't want to miss that conversation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. We've got one half hour left in this 90-minute broadcast that I requested from you. If you would give us the time, we would give you the world and our broadcast partners helping us to understand current events in light of biblical prophecy. We're going to be talking with David James in a moment. Our focus will be critical race theory. You do not want to miss that conversation. By the way, here is our poll question. Do you believe, as it teaches in Genesis chapters 1 through 6 and Genesis 9 and 10, that there is only one race in our world, and that is the human race? That's the poll question. Go to my homepage on my website, Prophecy Today, to answer the question. And let me just ask you to be praying for our ministry, Prophecy Today. We need your prayer support, but we also need financial assistance at this very critical time in history. Consider going to my website, to the location for donations, and helping us financially. We now bring to this microphone David James. David and I set aside this portion of the program to have a conversation each and every week. We choose an issue or two, put them together maybe, and then we talk to you about what the Bible has to say on this issue. 
It's for us as well because we all want to understand the biblical principles about these issues and how we need to deal with them from that perspective and have that as a part of our daily walk with Jesus Christ. Topic this time will be the Tulsa Massacre, Juneteenth, and Critical Race Theory. That's going to be upcoming in a moment. But as we always do, we open up with a question. David, this week's listener's email includes a question and some comments about the tribulation and the millennial kingdom that seem to reflect some confusion. I thought it would be good for us to discuss this confusion and help to clear it up. Would you do that, please, sir? Sure, and I think we need to read the whole email first and then address the main points. He wrote this, The Jews are to rule the nations that kindly treated Israel, so they are God's earthly people. On the other hand, Christians, per the prayer of John 17 and Revelation's depiction of the descending new Jerusalem, are God's heavenly people. How can God's heavenly, forgiven, saved, and thus brothers in and with Christ be expected to suffer any tribulation which is intended only to bring the stubborn, hard-hearted children, the Jews, to their knees, thus to trust him? And then he says, by the way, Revelation is not written to, though also for, Christians' edification. It's not written to Christians, rather only to the Jews. So there's a lot to unpack here in a short time, Jimmy, and a lot more could be said than what we have time for. So just briefly, the last statement about the recipients of Revelation being only the Jews seems to reflect what we would call hyper-dispensationalism. They don't believe that the Church started in Acts chapter 2, but rather in Acts chapter 13 or later, which leads to all sorts of interpretation problems when it comes to the majority of the New Testament. Another of his points suggests that the Church might go through the Tribulation, but we hold that the Church will not be on earth during the Tribulation because of being raptured prior to Daniel's 70th week. And then finally, that the Jews are God's earthly people and Christians' heavenly people was held by some early dispensationalists, but from Revelation 19 and 20, we know the Church returns with Christ and rules with Him for a thousand years on the earth, and then in the new heavens and earth in eternity future. Boy, that was a lot unpacked very quickly there, David. Did a great job. Thank you so much. Hope our listener who had the question was focused in on our answer today. Well, before we get to our main topic for the week, I wanted to do a follow-up on a story that we did several weeks ago concerning a plaque that was put up honoring missionaries, and that plaque was at Wheaton College there in the Chicago area. It had fallen victim, actually, to cancel culture and was taken down. Give us the update. Well, Jimmy, I think we try to be fair and balanced as much as possible. And so since we were critical of Wheaton College about this at the end of March, uh, I agree that an update for our listeners is a good idea. So that plaque had been donated in 1957 by Wheaton's class of 1949 in remembrance of classmates Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley, who were killed along with Nate Saint, who had graduated from Wheaton a year later, as well as Pete Fleming and uh, Roger Udarian. And the original plaque had said of the Warani people, for generations all strangers were killed by these savage Indians. 
And that language had been deemed offensive by the school, according to a statement that was released by Wheaton back in the spring, which stated specifically the word savage is now recognized as being inherently pejorative and having been often used historically to dehumanize and mistreat Native peoples around the world. So Jimmy Wheaton plans to dedicate a new plaque this fall that reads in part, God called them to the rainforest of Ecuador and the Wakrani people, a people who had never heard the gospel message, known for their violence to encroaching outsiders and for internal cycles of vengeance killing, they were among the most feared indigenous peoples in South America at the time. And then the text ends with, God's redemptive story continues as the gospel is still shared among the Warani people to this day. So, Jimmy, while I think the change was unnecessary, I do think this solution is acceptable, and I'm glad the plaque will be back up. And I agree with you, David. Well, let's now get to critical race theory. This is a subject we have not touched on since we've been doing these conversations. It seems to have some connection with the cancel culture and the attention being given to critical race theory on news and social media seems to have really ratcheted up over the last couple of weeks. Talk to us about this critical race theory, David. Well, you're right. We may have touched on some of these things before, but I don't know that we've really done a deep dive on it. And to set some context for maybe why this has been getting more attention recently, I think we've had something of a perfect storm that's been a confluence of several factors. And it really all started getting intense uh, with the death of George Floyd in April of last year, and then the protests all over the country in major cities throughout last summer. And then things intensified with the actions of BLM protesters and Antifa, and they continued to heat up as we went deeper into the presidential elections. And then there were the protests at the Capitol on January 6th, and concerning which, by the way, Tucker Carlson has made a compelling case that there may have been FBI operatives deeply involved with this, but that's a, that's a, a story for a different day. Uh, But that aside, things have continued to heat up throughout this year as well and was probably even amplified by the ongoing issues surrounding the pandemic. And then over the last few weeks, the discussion of critical race theory has just gone through the roof with the 100th year anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre at the beginning of June. And now today, June 19th, which is called Juneteenth, is a federal holiday for the first time in history because Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. You mentioned a couple of things. I think we need to do a little bit of a deep dive on there, if you will. You mentioned the Tulsa Massacre and Juneteenth. I think it would be helpful if you would explain those a bit more for our listeners and why they are part of the entire discussion. Well, no one who is against buying into critical race theory is trying to deny any part of her history, which which obviously has some ugly chapters in it, and that's true of every country in the world because we're all sinful in nature and in our thoughts and actions. So the Tulsa Massacre is also known as the Black Wall Street Massacre, and it happened over Memorial Day weekend in 1921, and, and it was sparked when a 19-year-old black shoe shiner was accused of assaulting a 17-year-old white elevator operator. And rumor had it that he was going to be lynched. And then things escalated when some 75 blacks came to the jail, some of them armed, 
to try to stop the lynching, and according to reports, quote-unquote, all hell broke loose uh, when a white man was killed when he tried to take a gun away from one of the blacks. And there are widely conflicting reports about how many died in the riots that followed, but they range from as few as 10 whites and 21 blacks to as many as 50 whites and 150 to 200 blacks. But it is known that more than 35 city blocks were destroyed and uh, some 10,000 were left homeless. So it was a terrible tragedy in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then concerning Juneteenth, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of 1862 had outlawed slavery in all states, and that was enforced by advancing Union troops. But because Texas was so remote with few Union forces, uh, Texas was slow to comply. And then on June 19, 1865, a Union general by the name of Gordon Granger proclaimed freedom for slaves in Texas, and the celebration of the day began in Galveston the next year, but only became a federal holiday this year. And with that information now, we come to, in our discussion today, the critical race theory itself. David, can you give us a definition and help us to understand some of what it really means? I'm pretty sure that a lot of people don't really get the whole issue, even though it's being talked about a lot nowadays. Well, an article on TheHill.com put it this simple way. Critical race theory is an academic theory created to explain the relationship between race, racism, and power, and its byproduct, social inequality. So, Jimmy, to go a little deeper, critical race theory, or CRT, is a movement of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States that actually originated in the 70s in writings and then as a movement in the 80s, but it's only recently gained a lot of traction in media and politics and society as a whole. So the idea is that it seeks to critically examine United States law as it connects with social and cultural issues related to race and racism in an attempt to achieve what its proponents see as racial justice in this country. And critical race theory tends to have two related themes that it focuses on. The first theme is that white supremacy is baked into American culture from its foundation and that systemic racism both exists and maintains power through the law and the legal system. And then the second theme is the belief that it is possible to transform the relationship between law and racial power through social and political action so that racial justice can be achieved. And then going back to the Hill article, which, by the way, I largely disagree with in its approach, the author wrote this, one approach to explain the racial tension over economic resources is to apply critical race theory, which explains that the people who have the power to create policy and distribute economic resources are white and mostly male. They are the ones who are responsible. So then, David, from a Christian perspective, what would you say are some of the biggest reasons to be concerned about critical race theory in general? Well, I found an op-ed on the ArkansasOnline.com website that was written by two Christians uh, who had some very smart and insightful things to say. Let me just share a few quotes from the article. It says, Critical race theory has critical errors. By simplistically reducing evil to power dynamics and external social realities, 
CRT denies moral agency and the redemptive potential of entire groups of people because of their racial identity. And then it said, like the postmodernism that birthed it, critical race theory can be considered a worldview. And finally, it says, if we don't want unbiblical explanations of life and justice sweeping through the church or culture, we better make sure we communicate and embrace the full ramifications of Christian truth for society. So, Jimmy, to put it simply, critical race theory seeks to reinterpret and rewrite history and to reframe social cultural issues by distorting biblical truth and even denying absolute truth in order to advance a false narrative and a subversive agenda that I think is destroying this country and undermining the Christian principles that are its foundation. I agree 100%. And in fact, when I go back to Genesis, I only see one race, the human race. I'm not sure there's such a thing as racism. But David, I do congratulate you on your research and how you always are ready and prepared when we come together for our discussions. Thank you so very much, and be ready for next week. We'll have another discussion at hand. Glad to do it, Jimmy. Look forward to next week. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll open the Bible, look at the reports from my broadcast partners, and we'll take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. As we come to this portion of Prophecy Today weekend, 
I want to rehearse the lead stories from my broadcast partners and then take a look at the book. Now, that's the Bible I'm talking about, and I want you to get your Bible out and be ready to understand how current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Let me remind you that hearing these news stories by themselves may leave you with many questions about what God is doing in our world today. You need not only these excellent reports from my broadcast partners, reports that you will not hear on mainstream media, but you must have a prophetic perspective on these reports as well. Let me remind you that if you had to miss any of these reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you will find that we have archived these reports from my broadcast partners so that you can listen to them at your convenience. And please tell a friend or a family member about these reports. They need to hear them as well. That's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now, I want to take several moments to give you my prophetic perspective on the lead stories from my broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman, we found him today in southern France, and he is gleaning information from his travels to give us a look at geopolitical activities. Ken gave us his analysis of President Biden's trip to Europe and his different meetings with world leaders. You know, America is a world superpower today. But remember, America is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. I believe that God brought America into existence so that they could make political decisions that would set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David Dolan came to the broadcast table with his Middle East news update. He reported that Hamas has promised to continue their armed struggle against Israel's brand new coalition government. Remember, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is some 4,000 years old. It started with a struggle between Jacob and Esau, Genesis chapter 25, where they started this struggle in the womb of their mother. That's Genesis 25, verses 22 and 23. This struggle will only end with the return of Jesus Christ back to the earth. That's Obadiah, verses 16 to 18. Winky Madad, who lives in a place called Shiloh, a very historic and prophetic place in Israel, brought to our attention President Biden's demand to the State Department to erase the term Abraham Accords and not to use the term in public discussion. This directive by President Biden, I do believe, sets the stage for Daniel 9.27 to be fulfilled. 
That prophecy brings the Antichrist on the scene to confirm peace agreements on the table, the Abraham Accords, that are not working. And when you try to destroy them, as the Biden administration is doing, they do need that confirmation from the Antichrist. Maurice Hirsch, who is a part of the Palestinian Media Watch team, said that the Palestinians have a martyr cult where mothers encourage their boys to be suicide bombers to go out and kill Israeli Jews. In that Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Hamas is at the tip of the spear of the armed struggle to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, Psalm 83 and verse 4. This report proves that we are at that point. John Rood covers the European Union for us. He talked about NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, warning about Russia and China. As we got that report from Brussels, Belgium, about NATO, we were able to recognize three political entities that are indeed mentioned in Bible prophecy. I'm talking about China, Russia, and NATO, which is sponsored by the European Union. These are all in Bible prophecy with the European Union, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire key to our understanding of the end times. And David James and I discussed the critical race theory. I concluded our conversation with David James by referring to Genesis chapters 1 to 6 and 9 and 10. That scripture states that there is only one race in our world, the human race. Critical race theory is a fraud. Let me remind you that if you had to miss any of these reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you will find that we have archived these reports from my broadcast partners so that you can listen to them at your convenience. And please tell a friend or a family member about these reports. They need to hear them as well. That's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. As you've listened to our reports from my six broadcast partners here on PTW, you had to come to an understanding of how current events in light of Bible prophecy have us at the point in history for the next event on God's calendar of activities, and that would be the rapture. There is no prophecy that needs to precede the rapture of the church. That rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.